Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lindsay Chervinsky, who's the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. This is published in 2020 by Harvard University Press, and it's a really interesting and deeply detailed investigation of an understanding of how the cabinet, the president's cabinet, came into being um, through Washington's administration, um, and what we can learn from sort of the the foundation that Washington set, as in so many things. Um, but I'm going to have Lindsay tell us a lot about that as we talk about the cabinet. First, I'd like to welcome Lindsay Chervinsky to the podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular project. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Um, So I am a historian of the presidency and the cabinet in particular. I'm currently a scholar in residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies and a senior fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies. Many, many years ago, I started with this project as my dissertation, and I really came to it because I was looking for books that explained the origins of the cabinet, not so much the the relationships between very famous names like Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton, but I wanted to understand the institution as a part of the executive branch. And I just really couldn't find anything. And so I decided that that was the question that I wanted to answer. And then after finishing my dissertation, I spent several years writing it in such a way rewriting it and rewriting it, that it would be a little bit more accessible to non-academic historians. And and you do a a lovely job of sort of making this discussion really accessible in both the writing and the discourse. Um, And so I I appreciated that in reading the book. Um, But I also did find the way that you approach this to be really interesting in thinking about what is and isn't in the Constitution with regard to the cabinet, as you talk about um, at some length and in different ways, Um, and also a lot about what and how the cabinet works with the president, as well as how the cabinet sort of works with Congress in particular policy areas, specifically diplomacy and foreign affairs. So can you talk a little bit first about what the Constitution does and doesn't say, um, and how how that sort of got interpreted early on? Absolutely. I think that's such a great place to start because so many people think that um, the, you know, the cabinet is in the Constitution and a part of the Constitution, and it actually isn't. There, the word cabinet itself is nowhere to be found. And Article 2 is actually really quite short. Um, it does not... Uh, tell the president that he should convene a body or anything like that. There are two options that are laid out 
for the president to obtain advice. The first is that the president can request written advice from the department secretaries on issues pertaining to their departments. And the second is that the president can advise and consent with the Senate on matters of foreign affairs, which, you know, sounds a little funny to us in the 21st century because we think that, you know, the Senate should really either just be a rubber stamp or a veto on things like treaties and appointments. But really, the expectation leading into the Constitutional Convention and then into the new presidency was that the Senate would be a safe advisory body because. It was relatively small. The senators were indirectly elected. And so that would really be the the best group to advise the president. So explaining to us a little bit more about how the the Senate, um, what the role of the Senate was originally conceived in context of the president and the cabinet. Could you explain that a bit more? Absolutely. So the Senate in 1789, when the federal government first uh, came into office in New York City, there were only 24 senators present because Rhode Island hadn't yet ratified the Constitution. And so the idea was if there was a, a question on diplomacy or foreign affairs, the president could go meet with the Senate, get their advice and support And then once the president actually came up with a treaty or an appointment, then they would vote on it. And Washington really followed this expectation. Um, It's important to remember that he was at the Constitutional Convention. He was the president of the convention. He attended every session and socialized daily with the delegates afterwards. So he had a very clear understanding of what was expected of him. And so he actually arranged to meet with the Senate in late August of 1789 He was sending commissioners to a peace negotiation between representatives from the Native American nations and then North and South Carolina. And he had never done this before. He had never sent a peace commission or given instructions to the commissioners. And so he went to meet with the Senate and um, to get their input. And the meeting went incredibly poorly. He had sent them all of this sort of advanced paperwork for them to have the information He brought Henry Knox, who was the acting secretary of war at the time, to answer any questions. He brought an address that he gave to them when uh, he arrived. And then he had a series of questions that he was hoping that they would debate and answer for him. And instead, they they said that they would like to refer the issue to committee and have him come back a week later for their recommendation. Um, And he absolutely lost his temper. He yelled at them. Uh, And before he left, he reportedly said on the way out, that he would never again return to the Senate for advice. Um, I'm not totally sure that that statement actually happened. It's one of those sort of myths that's been passed down in history. But whatever he said, he certainly was thinking it because he never again did return. So, you know, just a couple of months into Washington's presidency, the Senate has essentially been ruled out of one of its big um, constitutional responsibilities and also uh, eliminated as one of the president's advisory bodies. Um, but you say that it's the cabinet sort of comes in as a, another means of providing advice, advice and consent, not necessarily consent, but advice, and that this is also how Washington started to pull the cabinet together, and that a lot of what your book is discussing, which I found really fascinating, was 
the the way that you talk about it, it was kind of an organic evolution. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I think that's the best way to describe it because so much of the early governing practices, and especially in the presidency where you know, Article 2 has very few things actually written down about how the president is supposed to operate day to day, Washington really had to sort of figure out on the fly as he was dealing with, you know, domestic pressures or international crises. And so it was incredibly organic because it was in response to what was in front of him. And the cabinet is the perfect example because when Washington first entered office, he tries to meet with the Senate. He sticks to that um, part of Article 2 that says that the president can request written advice. And he does initially try and stick to written correspondence with the department secretaries. But that proves to be sort of wildly inefficient and not helpful because he needs to be able to ask follow-up questions. And so then he starts having one-on-one consultations. And Washington actually only meets with the secretaries one-on-one for the first two and a half years of his administration. It wasn't until November of 1791 that he actually convened the first cabinet meeting. So he did not go into office intending to create it. It was not there from day one, but instead was sort of the final option that he went to once he realized that there wasn't really, um, you know, anything else that would provide that sort of support he needed. And you talk about the fact that he sort of drew on the cabinet as a cabinet, but also on the various cabinet secretaries as a kind of means that was familiar to him because of the way he had operated as a general in the military and how he thought about sort of taking advice and using advice. This seemed really fascinating to me because it's also a lot of what we think about when we think about presidents in their cabinets. How do they structure them? And it's often in ways that they are familiar with coming from other places in their lives. So I would love for you to tell some of the stories about how Washington sort of came to think about the cabinet as this mechanism to give him advice and how he structured that relationship. Yeah, that's that's so right. And Washington really, although he had served in the Virginia House of Burgesses and he had been around Congress most of his life, he was really a military man. And that sort of military mentality really suited the way that he thought about issues. It suited his decision-making practices. It suited sort of his desire for efficiency and um, helpful information. And so when Washington was commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, he came up with this system where he would convene a council of war before any major decision whether it was entering into a military engagement, whether it was deciding where to spend winter quarters, which was a very important strategic decision, whether it was um, you know, deciding to order a retreat, which was potentially very politically controversial. So councils of war were an, an essential element before each of those big decisions. And Washington came up with a number of sort of tools to manage the sometimes very vibrant personalities that were in these councils. Um, people, you know, like Alexander Hamilton and Henry Knox, but also people like Charles Lee, who would bring his pack of hounds with him wherever he went, including a council of war meeting. And they were very loud and boisterous. So these were not sort of quiet, subdued events. Um, and so his strategies were as follows. He would send out a letter ahead of time with a list of questions for the officers and the aides to consider. 
And then he would use those questions as the agenda to try and sort of give structure to the conversation. And the officers and aides would often sort of debate the different options. And if they could not come to any sort of agreement, then Washington would ask for written advice afterwards to make sure that he heard from everyone, to make sure he understood all of the information, to allow him to sort of study it and make decisions in his own time. But then also, in case he needed it, he would have written evidence that people had supported whatever you know final decision he decided to make. And that same structure, he applied basically identically to the cabinet. Once he decided that cabinet meetings were essential, he did the same thing. He would send the letters to the secretaries, use those questions as the agenda, and then request written advice. And um, so it's pretty remarkable to see how, how beneficial he had found that process as a commander in chief. He then found it really helpful again as president because it was an opportunity for him to sit back and hear from his advisors who had different expertise and experiences than he did, and to make sure he really understood all the options available to him, and then also to allow the other secretaries or officers to sort of poke holes in whatever argument their comrades were suggesting, so that Washington really felt like he had a firm grasp on all of the information. And and in the Washington cabinet, as we well know, um, even before Lynn Manuel Miranda started writing about Hamilton, um, the early cabinet was one of big personalities as well mm-hmm. as you sort of delineate in your book. Um, obviously, Hamilton and Jefferson famously, um, but Knox as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about how? Washington himself sort of turned to these various um, big ego, big personalities in his cabinet and how he managed them? Yeah. One of Washington's, I think, greatest strengths as president and and uh, something that some of his successors who have been particularly successful as well have done is they view the cabinet as an opportunity to provide advice and support on on issues that they just simply don't know as much about. It is impossible for one person to know everything and to have all of the experiences and, and knowledge and training to do the job. And so Washington was very particular about who he selected for these positions. They needed to have some sort of um, knowledge or expertise that he did not because he was very aware of his own weaknesses. So for example, Thomas Jefferson had served At many of the different courts abroad, he was very familiar with European diplomacy. And critically, he spoke French, which was the language of diplomacy at the time and a language that Washington was not fluent in. Washington had also never, the only time he had left the country was when he went to Barbados as a teenager. So he had never been to Europe. And so that firsthand account was essential. Similarly, Um, Edmund Randolph, who was the first attorney general, was a really brilliant legal mind, and he had served as the attorney general of Virginia and then the governor. And so he was essential to helping Washington understand constitutional questions or legal ramifications. And he was so good at this that even the other secretaries that had their own legal training, like Hamilton and Jefferson, actually went to Randolph for his legal opinion as well. So Washington was very careful to make sure he had, you know, really talented subordinates. The second key part, and this is another really essential part of cabinet precedent, is that the cabinet represents an amazing opportunity 
to allow different parts of the nation to feel represented and heard in the administration. So obviously what um, counts as representation and diversity is very different in 2020 than in 1789 because they're all white guys. But um, they were from different parts of the country. They had different experiences. Hamilton kind of cozied up to the merchant trade elite in New York City, whereas Thomas Jefferson was a plantation slave owner. And so they did really bring different perspectives and helped to kind of build ties between the states at a time when they were incredibly tenuous and the concept of nationalism really didn't exist. So um, Washington was very attentive to these issues when he was bringing together his cabinet and making sure that that they fit together in that way. And then the last piece was that he knew them and he trusted them and he had a relationship with them. And if you're going to ask someone for advice, it helps if you trust what they're going to tell you. And that that question of trust in terms of Washington's cabinet, you stress in the book is really, really important. Um, why? I mean, and again, it's, you know, sort of makes a certain amount of sense as we look back retrospectively on any president and their cabinet they often will defer to or take more seriously voices that they trust versus voices that they may not know as well and thus don't trust as well, not necessarily that they were bad people. But this question of of Washington sort of being able to trust these early cabinet secretaries is seems to be quite important. Why is that? Well, I think it's really important to emphasize in 1789 when Washington comes into office that all republics up until this point had failed. And usually when they failed, they did so in a fairly spectacular manner that was very violent. And um, so, you know, they were really used to monarchies and or oligarchies. And so the, the experiment that they were undertaking was really extraordinary and quite risky. And so Washington had this deep sense that every single action he was taking was laden with so much additional pressure because he was going to be setting precedent for the people that followed him. And if he took a wrong step, then it's very possible that the country could fail. And that sounds kind of hyperbolic in 2020 because we know that it worked and the government survived and the country survived and all that jazz. But at the time, this sense of of real deep-seated anxiety was very widely shared because not only could the country split into factions, but European powers were sort of hungry to snatch up, if they did sort of break into groups, snatch up those groups for themselves. And so there just there was this sense that there were all of these things that work that could go wrong. And um, so Washington really felt like he needed people around him to give advice that he trusted were sort of in the best interest of the country to help it survive and to help guide him through this very perilous first part of the presidency. And those cabinet secretaries also had a sense that what they were doing was somewhat precedent setting as well, because they were distinct from their British cousins in a sort of similar situation in parliament. Is that correct? Yes. So the American cabinet is different from the British cabinet in a couple of key ways. The first is that the American secretaries do not have a seat in Congress, whereas the British secretaries are parliamentarians. And this was very intentional because as the constitution was being crafted, they wanted to have a separation between the executive branch and then the legislative branch. And so when the first federal Congress were creating the departments, 
they ensured that they basically only reported to the president so there wouldn't be this commingling between the two different branches. The second key difference is that Americans were very distrusting of the British cabinet. They really blamed British ministers for instigating the policies that had sort of led to the revolution. And they felt like because these meetings were secret and they took place behind closed doors and there was no sense of who was really in charge and who was making decisions, that there just wasn't any transparency and they couldn't hold anyone accountable for bad decisions. And so all of the first American secretaries, Hamilton, Jefferson, Knox, Randolph, Washington, they were very aware of this sort of widespread distrust and very attentive to try and demonstrate that they were not trying to be like the British system, which sometimes worked better than others. Um, Some people, you know, really resented Hamilton's power in the cabinet and accused him of acting like Lord North or Robert Walpole, who were two particularly hated British ministers. But that was something that they were very much aware of and um, really tried to avoid that comparison. And and I wanted to ask you uh, a question about one of the dynamics that you sort of flag early in the book that goes as well to our thinking about the cabinet and the way and and Washington's relationship to it. You talk about not only the political side of things, but also the social side of things, that there was a sort of social political dynamic with regard to how Washington was thinking about the cabinet and ultimately creating it and using it. Can you explain a little bit about that kind of terminology and and how that works here? Absolutely. So this is another area of Washington's experience that really comes from the war. When Washington was commander-in-chief of the army, he saw his officers and his aides as his official family, and he referred to them as such. And so not only did they meet to discuss, you know, the art of warfare and business, but they would get together for meals. There were balls during the winter. They would go out on social rides. When their wives came to winter quarters, they socialized together. So it was very much a close-knit group of men and, and, and women as well because their wives became good friends with each other. And uh, that was really essential because if there were hurt feelings or disagreements or, you know, sort of um, misunderstandings in the heat of battle, those social bonds helped smooth over those things and remind them that they were all sort of fighting for the same cause. So Washington really tried to implement the same system when he was in the presidency. He wanted to have an official family and he referred to the secretaries as his official family. And so He would have them over for dinner. He would invite them to go to the theater. He would invite them to go out on rides or to go see gardens with him and um, really tried to make them a part of that dynamic, both because he enjoyed their company. He understood the value of building this esprit de corps among the different secretaries, but also because they were generally um, fairly lively and they had, you know, big personalities. And so sometimes when Washington was hosting, he didn't really always want to do all the talking. And it helped to have someone like Hamilton, who was very happy to do the talking and to sort of be the unofficial host. And so um, Washington, you know, very intentionally used these social events as a way to try and mitigate some of the conflict between Hamilton and Jefferson if they were having a very long cabinet meeting, he would sometimes stop in the middle and say, let's go have a family dinner. And they would go and meet as a small group and have a meal and then go back to their deliberations. 
And it didn't quite work as well in the cabinet because Jefferson and Hamilton hated each other so much, but it's certainly, uh, he certainly tried. And I mean, it's an, it's an interesting sort of understanding also. And again, as you, you've already pointed out, you know, this, this was a group of, um, white, um, well-to-do men, um, and, and, and that was pretty much it. And, and they, they had sort of known each other from other places in their lives, which also goes to sometimes how we think about maybe some of the people who are running companies or, or the government both here and elsewhere, that there is a kind of familiar familiarity, um, among the people who are involved, even if, as you note, Hamilton and Jefferson hated each other, uh, but they'd known each other for a long time. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So it's not totally clear when Hamilton and Jefferson first meet. I think most people think that it probably took place um, in, you know, sometime in the 1770s. It's possible they overlapped in Philadelphia or New York. Um, But all sort of all evidence sort of suggests that initially they had at least wary respect for one another and, um, you know, were both willing to sort of be in the administration and be willing and active participants the problem with their relationship, I mean, there were many of them, was that they really disagreed about everything. They disagreed about what the future of the nation should be. They disagreed about which foreign powers the United States should be closest to. They disagreed about the role of the military and the role of trade and industry and the role of the federal government in promoting those things. And then once they got into the cabinet meetings, they had already been battling over these issues for a couple of years and then were confined to this relatively small space. Washington's private study was only about 15 by 21 feet, and it was quite full of furniture. And when they would so meet- no social distancing. <laughs> no social distancing. <laughs> and when they were meeting, it was, so it was Hamilton Jefferson, who was about six feet tall, uh, Knox, who was also six feet and uh, notoriously quite rotund. Washington, who was 6'2", 6'3", and then Randolph, who wasn't um, particularly small, but he wasn't wasn't huge. Um, And they're in this room. They meet for several hours at a time, sometimes up to five times per week in the summer of 1793 in Philadelphia. We know that that uh, summer was very hot and humid because there was a really bad yellow fever outbreak that fall. And they didn't have air conditioning. And so you can just imagine that they're in this space. They're pretty uncomfortable. They already hate each other. And then Jefferson writes in his notes that Hamilton speaks without interruption for 45 minutes. And (laughs) we know from from other descriptions of Hamilton that he tended to gesticulate wildly. And once he kind of got on a roll, he would pace. So you can imagine him pacing in this space that didn't have a whole lot of room anyway. And you can just kind of see Jefferson's head exploding. And then they come back the next day and he did the same thing. He speaks for another 45 minutes. And so I think that, you know, even if they hadn't already hated each other in 1793, they were probably destined to do that anyway. And and so even even the great George Washington could not sort of <laughs> man, man, manage both the physical and the psychological, the intellectual sort of um, anti- antithesis between uh, Jefferson and Hamilton, I suppose. 
Yeah, I mean, he really tried. He, you know, he was constantly pleading with both of them to recognize the good in the other and recognize that they were both committed patriots, basically. And, you know, when one would complain about the other, he would say, like, no, that's not, you know, you're not really being fair. Um, You know, he pleaded with them to stay in office. He really tried to, you know, have positive experiences through the family dinners. But I think also part of it that's essential is that Washington didn't mind the conflict because he found that discourse to be very productive. And Hamilton didn't really mind the conflict because I think he thrived in that sort of debate atmosphere. It's just that Jefferson really despised it. And so if Jefferson had been a more willing participant, that might have gone a little differently. And that's, I mean, that's everything that I sort of understand about Jefferson. If you start reading about how he operated politically one-on-one, not necessarily his politics. That, that he really did shrink from conflict. Yeah, he felt it was counterproductive and um, was damaging to the administration, whereas it was much more helpful to have sort of behind-the-scenes conversations, especially if there was going to be disagreement, and that's how he operated his cabinet. He did have meetings, but only when he felt like it would be productive. And if he thought the secretaries were going to disagree, he would go to them one at a time. So that that disagreement wouldn't, you know, tear apart his administration. And and so in sort of this discussion, now we're in the weeds about the personalities <laughs> inside the cabinet. Uh, you trace through the book a number of essentially case studies, mm-hmm. uh, as political scientists would call them, mm-hmm. um, of how Washington operated with regard to his cabinet in particular instances of import in the early Republic. Can you talk about these particular sort of focus within the book and and how they reveal how Washington sort of grew to use the cabinet and how it became to some degree the precedent that we now have? Yeah, absolutely. So I I chose three intentionally because one, the first one, the neutrality crisis, which occurred in 1793, sets up the president's authority over diplomatic affairs. The second one, the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794, sets up the president's authority over domestic issues. And then the last one, which was the first time Washington asserted executive privilege, um, A, that's a huge moment in precedent-setting behavior, but it also reflects the um, ongoing evolution of the cabinet and how Washington's cabinet behavior later in the administration differed and and really set the precedent. So maybe I'll just go through each of those three real quick. Um, So the first one, the neutrality crisis, uh, for those of you who don't know, in 1792, sorry, in 1793, February 1793, Uh, France declared war on Great Britain, and it quickly spiraled into an international conflict that included their allies and enemies and colonial holdings. And the United States was in a really tricky spot because it could not afford to go to war. Not only did it not really have an army or a navy, so fighting was sort of impossible anyway, but it was just beginning to recover emotionally, environmentally, physically, fiscally from the revolution. And so when... Washington learns about this conflict, he and the cabinet set about trying to figure out how to craft neutrality. And they're basically faced with a challenge, which is, do they involve Congress or not? And involving Congress means one of two things, either waiting several months for Congress to come back into session, which didn't seem particularly advisable, or calling an emergency session. 
And they decide not to do that and to instead use the powers of the presidency to issue a proclamation of neutrality and then try and figure out how to enforce it and deal with the incredible legal ramifications of what neutrality means. Because it's not just keeping American citizens out of conflict. It's how do you deal with ships that come in under, you know, they're, they're private ships called privateers that come into American ports under a letter of mark from the French or British government. And they are essentially actors in this war. But, you know, how do you treat them? Do you allow them into port? Do you sell them goods? At what point have you crossed the line? And that entire process is complicated by citizen Edmond Charles Genet, who is the new French minister. And he arrives and he basically ignores American neutrality and proceeds to arm a number of privateers in the port of Philadelphia, which is six blocks from Washington's house. So he is under Washington's nose and quite literally just like thumbing his nose at Washington. Um, So over the summer, in particular in August, things come to a head and the cabinet comes up with a series of rules of neutrality, which Congress later accepts and turns into legislation. And uh, that really governs all periods of neutrality going forward until the Civil War. And they also request the recall of Genet from France. And, And that summer sets up two really important precedents. First, by accepting Washington's rules of neutrality, Congress basically cedes the authority to determine diplomatic policy to the president. Second, um, when France accepted the recall, they basically tacitly acknowledged that the president has the right to set policy for the United States and then the right to expect that foreign ministers will respect that policy. So that was sort of a huge moment for diplomatic authority Um, And the cabinet played an essential role in every one of those decisions. So the next year, what um, the neutrality crisis was for sort of diplomatic power, the Whiskey Rebellion really was for domestic power. And when there was a rebellion that broke out in Western Pennsylvania in the summer of 1794, Washington again was faced with the same conundrum. Do you involve Congress or do you leave it to the states to decide because this is technically a Pennsylvania issue? Or do you get very actively involved? And the cabinet encouraged Washington, although he frankly didn't need a whole lot of encouragement, to get actively involved. And, um, you know, in a matter of moments, they basically decide to sideline Pennsylvania and to sideline Congress, which is a pretty remarkable decision. And then they basically spend the next couple of months browbeating the Pennsylvania officials into compliance, which are a series of just extraordinary letters between Edmund Randolph, Alexander Hamilton, and the governor of Pennsylvania, Thomas Mifflin. And um, this all sort of culminates in a march of several state militias that go out west. The rebellion crumbles. And even the Republican presses at the time sort of laud Washington's actions and applaud him for taking decisive action. So once again, sort of the American public and Congress has accepted this sphere of influence for the president over um, a new area, which in this case is domestic affairs. The last one um, really occurred in the context of the debates over the Jay Treaty. Um, Jay, Chief Justice John Jay had gone to Great Britain to negotiate a new treaty to sort of solve some of the remaining issues from the revolution and to try and sort of set the two countries on a better economic foot because they were constantly squabbling. And I think that he really came up with the best possible solution that he could have, given that the United States had absolutely zero leverage in these negotiations. But um, Southerners were particularly upset about it. And so there was a lot of pushback against uh, the Jay Treaty. 
And what's really remarkable is that Washington receives it in the spring of 1795. And he shows it to Edmund Randolph and they decide, um, sorry, at this point, Edmund Randolph is the secretary of state because Thomas Jefferson has retired. And they decide they're going to convene an emergency session of the Senate and they ask the senators to come back in June. And for the next several months, they keep the treaty secret. They don't show it to the vice president. They don't show it to any of the other cabinet secretaries. And everyone knows that it has arrived. So there are these series of letters of John Adams and James Madison trying to figure out what is going on. And this is pretty remarkable because it shows how much the cabinet has evolved. Um, if, you know, if Washington had received a treaty in 1793 when Hamilton was still in office, there is no way he would have kept it from him. But at this point, other than Randolph, I don't really think that Washington liked his secretaries very much. There had been a lot of turnover. I kind of referred to them as the B team. Um, <laughs> and so he just, he didn't really like them as much. So he preferred to have one-on-one meetings or request the written advice of Hamilton who had left office at this point. Um, and the, you know, the one exception occurs in the spring of 1796 when the treaty has been ratified. And as part of the treaty, the uh, House of Representatives has to fund a commission, which is going to adjudicate remaining cases of debt from before the war. And um, so in order to fund the commission, they need to raise money. And Republicans in the House see this as an opportunity to sort of squash the treaty because they hate it very much. And they request all executive papers pertaining to the Jay Treaty as a way sort of to embarrass the administration. And so Washington convenes a cabinet meeting and they ultimately decide to assert executive privilege for the first time. And he, he does convene a cabinet meeting in this moment because it is so precedent setting. And he wants to make sure he has that you know, written advice of them all agreeing with this big decision. But what's remarkable about his assertion of executive privilege is in doing so, not only does he say, no, I'm not going to give it to you. He scolds the House of Representatives for trying to take on more authority um, in the diplomatic and treaty process than was designated to them by the Constitution and encourages them to come look at the journals of the convention that he has in the Department of State in case they want to fact check him. So (laughs) it is a remarkable like throwing down the gauntlet in this letter. Um, And but as I said, for in terms of like cabinet purposes and cabinet discussions, these final years in office really demonstrate how far the cabinet had evolved in that it was no longer meeting regularly because Washington didn't really like the people in office and didn't trust them as much. And that established a precedent that the secretaries did not have a legal right to be a part of the decision-making process. They can offer their opinions when it is requested, but they don't have a right to be in the room or to be heard. Um, And so that was really essential that Washington kind of establish that precedent for his successors going forward. And and that's my next question. And you you sort of weave this a little bit through the book um, and you talk a little bit about it at the end of the epilogue. But it, you you sort of make the case with regard to Washington and the cabinet that this was the precedent setting that mm-hmm. Washington did, in fact, establish how cabinets operate, that we have one in the first place. Um, and that presidents have have used them. And sometimes the presidents, if they aren't good managers of the cabinet, which means they also might not be good managers of the United States, have also found difficulty with regard to 
the cabinet. Can you talk a little bit about how Washington's precedent throughout his time in office has contributed to that? Yeah, so I I really think that the cabinet is one of the most underappreciated aspects of Washington's legacy. And obviously, it has expanded a great deal. It has institutionalized. There's a National Security Council, as there wasn't one in the 1790s. But Washington left this legacy that the president gets to decide who their closest advisors are going to be and how they're going to relate to them and whether they're going to listen to their advice And there is very little public or congressional oversight of those relationships, whether they are department secretaries or vice presidents or family members or, you know, business associates. People don't really generally know who the president is talking to. And as you said, that can be an incredible opportunity for presidents who are really good masters of the personalities in their office and who are really good at sort of managing the different egos and ambitions. So you know, Lincoln and FDR are a couple of examples of presidents who did that really well. And so that flexibility works great for them and they can really make the most of that um, flexibility. But for presidents who maybe are more content to let the secretary sort of take over or who don't know how to manage or who can't manage or who refuse to work with their secretaries, the cabinet can be a huge liability because we don't actually really see the cabinet if it's successful. It tends to blend into the background and their successes become the president's successes and they are a credit to the institution and a credit to the administration. But if it's a bad cabinet and if it's racked by scandal or turnover or infighting or whatever it is, that detracts from a president's ability to get anything done, to be a leader on the international stage, to bring together people in different coalitions domestically, and so it's a, it's a really amazing way to study a president's ability to lead and, and one that I think is a little bit overlooked. And, and it certainly is an area, again, as you, you point out, where there, when there is scandal or when there is a lot of turnover or when there is infighting or when there is a, perhaps a high profile resignation around policy, that that often highlights mismanagement by a president. Um, and, and as you say, even Washington had his B team cabinet. Um, and it was, it wasn't necessarily as useful to him as Mm -hmm. the A team. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Washington sort of had the first cabinet scandal when, um, Oliver Wolcott Jr., who was the Secretary of Treasury, and Timothy Pickering, who was the Secretary of State, or excuse me, who was the Secretary of War and then the Secretary of State, accused Edmund Randolph of treason and selling state secrets to the French, which I maintain that he didn't actually do. I think that it was a terrible translation of French on their part, but that's a side note. Um, and Randolph and Washington had been friends for decades. They had been incredibly close. Randolph actually served as Washington's private lawyer for most of the time. And Washington basically cut off the relationship immediately because he was so concerned about the impact of scandal on his reputation, on the country's reputation, on the government's reputation. And he was more willing to sacrifice the relationship than risk that this would in some ways tarnish the nation's ability to continue to be a republic. I wanted to ask you um, one of the sort of points that you sort of bring up also at the at the end in the in the um, epilogue and at the um, in the final parts about Washington 
is his farewell address um, and who contributed to writing it, which also sort of reflects on the input from cabinet secretaries as well as people outside the cabinet. Can you talk a little bit about that particular instance? The farewell address is an ex- it is an excellent example of Washington's political savvy, but also his continuing relevance because of the issues that he raised for the nation going forward. So Washington first wanted to retire in 1792. He didn't want to stand for a second term. And when he was thinking about that, he asked James Madison, who he was still sort of close with at the time, to draft up a uh, basically an address to the American people, letting them know he was retiring. And um, his various advisors, including Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton, prevailed on him to serve another four years. But by 1796, he was so tired of the criticism and public office that there was nothing that anyone could say that would make him stay. But what he did, which was really quite brilliant, was that Madison and Jefferson at this point had sort of openly broken with the administration. There was a fledgling Republican Party that was starting to sort of really put pressure on Washington's administration, and he was worried that they would be critical of what he said. And so he took several paragraphs verbatim from Madison's draft and handed them over to Alexander Hamilton, who at this point was also out of the administration and was just a private friend and and advisor. And he asked Hamilton to come up with a draft, and he said, you know, you must include these paragraphs. Do not touch them. And that was basically a shot across the bow at Madison saying, do not criticize what I'm about to say, because if you do, I'm going to reveal who is the author of these paragraphs, Um, which is really quite feisty. Um, And so Hamilton comes up with this draft. Washington edits it a fair amount. He also adds some things in at the end. So he was not, you know, a passive observer in any way. He was very much a participant. But what we're left with is this incredible letter that basically says, the great hopes that Washington has for the nation, and then takes a moment to encourage American citizens to think of themselves as Americans and really try and focus on what unites them as opposed to what divides them, whether it be sectional division or regional or, you know, their different um, alliances with the British and the French. He encourages them to avoid any sort of foreign entanglements in their affections. So not to let their feelings for France or Great Britain divide themselves from, um, you know, their fellow Americans and to not let partisan tensions tear them apart. And so from a perspective in 2020, it is really remarkable that the issues that he is warning against are still issues that we're grappling with today. You mean in the headlines? Even <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible that, you know, in 1796, he had the foresight to see what was coming and to see where it was going. And Um, it's, you know, it's, it's remarkable. And it's also really sad that we're still plagued by those issues. So given this sort of long, um, exploration of Washington's cabinet, which I found to be very fascinating and a joy to read, Lindsay, what are you working on now? Well, I'm still really stuck on cabinets. I have become convinced that they are one of the most fascinating ways to, um, evaluate presidencies and, and presidential leadership especially because they are just, it's almost an impossible task to ask one person to manage the ego and ambitions and power in these, in these positions at the highest levels of government. And so I'm going to compare one of the best cabinets, which was Thomas Jefferson's and had the least turnover in American history 
with one of the worst, which was John Adams, and was um, practically borderline treasonous. His secretaries tried to undermine his election chances. They tried to undermine his foreign policy. It was really quite a debacle. And I think that by comparing the two, um, these are obviously still power and ego and ambition and managing these personalities is something we still really grapple with today. And presidents, it's an evergreen problem. So I think it will be really fascinating to go side by side with those two and to see what it also reveals about our contemporary moment. When you finish that book, will you come back on the new books in political science and talk Absolutely. to me about it? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Lindsay Chervinsky, who is the author of Washington's or The Cabinet, sorry, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. This was published in 2020 by Harvard University Press. I assume it's available at Harvard University Press's website as well as any independent bookseller that one might want to frequent online. Any brick and mortar stores you want to give a shout out to, Lindsay? Well, I would encourage everyone to, you know, go to their local bookstore. They can always purchase it through the Harvard site for you. Um, I know that there are a couple of museums that actually have signed copies, including um, Mount Vernon and the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I also have a special run of book plates that I ordered for readers who I obviously can't interact with in person right now. So um, if you do buy a copy and you would like to have a signed book plate, um, it has a little hound insignia up top because Washington loved hounds and I have a hound. Um, I would be happy to send one to you. Just send me a message and um, your address and I will get it in the mail for you. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. My pleasure.